0: Good morning. How are you doing? And uh, like Bernadette said, my name's Stephen, and, and we are going to be finishing up our sermon series on Micah 6.8. And here's what Micah 6.8 says: it says, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Rob and Sarah talked the past couple of weeks about these, the first two aspects of this. about acting justly. Rob talked about the call to do what's right that God places in front of us. Sarah talked about mercy and justice and how they're intertwined. And this morning, I want to talk about what it means to walk humbly with God, what that looks like for us. So if you'll just pray with me, I want to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to speak to us this morning. So will you pray? Holy Spirit, we just ask you to come. We just welcome your presence here. We thank you For your goodness to us, we thank you for your plans that you have for our lives, for your desires for us, for the things that you set in front of us that you kind of blatantly call us to. And we just ask this morning that you will speak. Just come and speak to our hearts individually, specifically what it is that you're wanting to do in our hearts and in our lives this morning. We just give you this time. Come and be here in Jesus' name. Amen if you have your Bible, open up to Micah 6. That's where we're going to be at. It's one of those small books towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, If you flip to Matthew and then go back a few pages, you'll find it. Micah 6, 1 through 8. I want to begin by looking at this dialogue quickly that we see going on between God and the people of Israel. And neither side likes each other all that much right now. They're both kind of frustrated with each other. And that's what we kind of stumble upon when we read Micah 6, 8. So let's look at my very abridged version of Micah 6, 1 through 8. It says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case. For the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And then the Israelites answer, they say, well, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So we're given this interaction that if it was like between two people, we would want to walk out of the room because it's slightly uncomfortable. They're both kind of coming pretty directly at each other. The Israelites have been complaining about God, saying what he does that really frustrates them, how they feel like he's done them wrong, he's done bad things to them, and God's like, okay, fine, tell me what it is. What have I done? I've saved you time and time again, but tell me how I've burdened you, how I've hurt you, what have I done to you? And then the Israelites give a slightly passive aggressive answer, and they don't answer the question they kind of sidestep it and they say, well how how should I come before you, God? you're God, you're so much better than we are, okay, I get it you know i I'm not worthy to be in front of you in essence, they're saying, "Okay, God, what do you want? What makes you happy now, I know for me personally. I haven't been married that long, but I've learned that in arguments with Sarah, I should not ask that question. (laughs) That doesn't usually go that well, right? Like, huh? Well, fine, what's going to make you happy? What do I have to do? That never goes over that well for either side. It's not good. I don't know what the Israelites were thinking about when they asked God that question, but I'm sure that they did not get an answer that they were hoping to get, because the answer you get in response to that question is never what you were hoping to hear. God comes directly out with it. He gives them a straight answer, and he says what it is that he wants. What will make him happy? You know, we think about that question, and I think like, okay, God, well, if ideally God's going to tell me what makes him happy, I hope that it's what makes me happy. Right, yeah, that's fair. So what makes me happy? Okay, well, I like walking to a coffee shop. I like living somewhere that I can walk to a coffee shop. That makes me happy. I like baseball. Baseball slightly above football. I know, it's strange like that. But, uh, so I really like going to a game when it's 75 and sunny outside, two good teams playing against each other. That makes me happy. I like music, so finding a new band on Spotify, a fun song coming on the radio that I can awkwardly sing loudly and kind of do weird dancing to in the car, that makes me happy. Listening to my favorite record on uh, re- my record player, that makes me happy. But what does God actually want? What does God Want that makes him happy? What would be his reply to that? And he gives this really straightforward answer, and he says, I want you to act justly, I want you to love mercy, and I want you to walk humbly with me. And all three of those require answer, require actions. None of them can be passively done. God doesn't give him a free, a free pass in the whole thing. He says, act, love, walk, make specific movements with each and every one of these three things and they're very focused towards others they're not even like the things that make me happy you know <laughs> they're not about me they're about how i engage with others so act justly towards others love mercy with others and how you engage with others walk humbly with god it's very focused and specific on other people there's action required in this If if you're a checklist person, maybe you read. Do we have any checklist people? (laughs) Very quickly, the checklist people are like, yes. (laughs) That is me right there. No questions. (laughs) That's funny. That is a personality trait of checklist people. Uh, (laughs) But if you're a checklist person, you hear this, and you're like, good. I got three things. I will do this. I will learn. I will read all the books. I will volunteer at all the places. I will pray with all the people. I will introspectively look at myself and make sure I'm doing it correctly all the time. I can check this off. Do justice, check. Love mercy, check. Walk humbly, check. I got it. This is my kind of task. Thanks, God. This does make me happy. If you're a checklist person, that's what you're thinking. Well, just become experts. Well, another thing that makes me happy is Malcolm Gladwell uh, books and podcasts. and Malcolm Gladwell. He says that in order to become an expert, it takes 10,000 hours of practice in something. 10,000 hours. So if you space that out over time, that accumulates you know, to reach 10,000 hours would be 14 months of doing nothing but whatever it is that you're working towards. That includes sleeping and eating, 14 months straight. That that would be 10 years of practicing three three hours a day at whatever it is that you want to become an expert at. 10 years, three hours a day, no Sundays off every single day. And of course, to be an expert and stay an expert, 10 years isn't the end of it, right? You have to keep going with that. So God wants us to become experts in these things and doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. And if Malcolm Gladwell's numbers are correct, and let's be honest, they're never wrong. (laughs) If his numbers are correct, then that's roughly 30 years and continuous that it requires of us to checkmark each one of these things. It's not quite impossible, but it's pushing the edge of what we could possibly actually do in and of ourselves. So what's the answer here? How do we do this thing that God wants us to do that makes him so happy? You know, we can never become experts in acting justly and loving mercy if we're not first walking humbly with God. There's an order of operation. Anyone remember your math? Any parents? that have to do this with their kids on a regular basis. Something comes first before you can do the rest. You have to walk humbly with God before you can act justly and love mercy. There's an order to this that's required of us in order to do these. The only way that we can act justly, that we can care for the forgotten, that we can stand up for the oppressed, that we can love the uncomfortable, the only way that we can love mercy, that we can show genuine kindness and care, grace and love to other people, the only way that we can walk humbly before our God is with doing this with Him in humility. It has to come first. That order is necessary. In order to treat others the way that God wants us to treat them, the way that God treats people, we have to know who God is. And we have to know how God sees us, what God sees in us. The only way we can live out Micah 6-8 is if we are first walking humbly with our God. And so that's what I want to look at. Sarah threw out some good Hebrew words last week, so I thought that I couldn't be—I uh, couldn't come with anything less than my good Hebrew A game this morning. The word uh, "humbly" that we see here in this verse is kind of unique. It's only used one other time in the Old Testament, uh, and the two references don't really line up. Proverbs eleven two is the other time it's used, and it doesn't come in the same context at all which has, of course, led a lot of smart people to argue vigorously about what it actually means, as always happens in this sort of thing. But they've kind of rounded it down to a few kind of obvious fits that would work for it, that don't all fit together at first. So they think that this word means submissive, lowly, prudently, and measured. Not everything lines up completely with it. Listen to what God's saying here, because I think that this unique Hebrew word is there on purpose, that there's something kind of bigger than the normal definition of humility that God's trying to, to show us here. He's saying that he wants us to walk prudently, measured, submissively with him, really embracing our loneliness, our weakness that that's what's involved in this process of walking humbly with God. So what does this look like? How do we do this as followers of Jesus? Well, the first thing that we have to do is recognize that who we are affects how we act. Affect, right? I always get confused with those two. Yes, it affects how we act. Who we are affects how we act. What I'm saying is is this, that... If you don't know who it is that Jesus has called you to be, if you're not aware of that, it's going to be very difficult to do the things that God's asking you to do. Who you are affects your actions. So what is our primary identity as followers of Jesus? Here's who Jesus tells us that we are. He says that we're children of God. You look at John twelve twelve. But to all who have received this, those who believe in his name, He's given the right to become his children. We're friends of God. John 15, 15. I no longer call you slaves because the slave does not understand what his master is doing, but I have called you friends because I have revealed to you everything that I heard from my father. Tells us that we're new creations. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. We're created for a very specific purpose, and it's to do good. In Ephesians 2.10, for we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And lastly, we're loved and we're chosen by God. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, for we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. This is who we are as followers of Jesus. You're his children. You're his friends. You're chosen for specific reasons and specific purposes. You're chosen. That in and of itself says anything. It's not accidental. But it's a choice that God made to embrace you, to welcome you in. You're created for specific things to do good. We're loved and redeemed by God, by a God who is good, who has good things for us. And let me say this a little bit more clearly with this. You don't get to choose this. That might seem a little bit weird, but you don't. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is just your reality. It's not a choice for you. And that's a really, really good thing. Because there might be one of those things that we're like, I'm not sure that I'm comfortable with that. I'm not sure that I would want to call myself that. I'm not sure I would want to call myself a child of God or a friend of God or a new creation. Uh, I'm not sure that I would want to call myself chosen. I wouldn't choose myself. Well, it doesn't matter. Because God chose you. He has given you this identity. He has called you in this way. This is kind of part of your DNA now as a follower of Jesus. It's just who you are, and it affects everything that you do. This reality is intricately important. And so it's important that we just embrace this reality. We don't want to fight against God's good gifts. We want to embrace them. We want to take them on because he's giving them to us how do we walk humbly with God? We first walk humbly with God by embracing the calling that he's given us, by who he's made us to be, and by being grateful for that change in us. That he has made us this way, that he's called us, that he's chosen us, that he loved us, that that relationship has changed everything in our lives. And the second thing I see here is that A part of godly humility is being prudent and measured. Now, I hear prudent, and it makes me think of, like, Jane Austen or something. It's not a word that we use very often, right? Uh, Prudence and measured uh, are not normal adjectives that we give to ourselves. But they just imply walking in a way that shows real care and thought for the future. It Kind of acknowledging our frustration, our impatience, Our weaknesses, our need for control, and choosing to rely on God in that. One of my favorite examples for this is from Lord of the Rings. There's a walking, talking tree in Lord of the Rings, as there are lots of unique things in Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, By the name of Treebeard. Quite a name. I'm not sure I would want that to be my nickname. Tree Beard. He's an int, walking, talking tree. That's who he is. And he is just the most steady and wise, kind of slow-paced, trotting, methodical being that you encounter in these books. And he's constantly saying things like this. I'll try and give my best Tree Beard voice if I can. (laughs) He says, but I spoke hastily we must not be hasty i have become too hot i must cool myself and think for it is easier to shout stop than to do it that's tree beard for you there you go This is the attitude I think that God wants us to have. I think there's something in this that really fits God's desire for us in being measured and prudent, that we need to go into things with real care for the future, for what the effect that it's gonna have, for the plan that's, following up in front of us that we're beginning to see to be really thoughtful in how we approach life, moving in God's time and not just in our frustration and our desire for control, not just moving when we want to, but moving actually when God wants us to aware of all that's going on around us, aware of the implications that it has for others that are around us. And the interesting thing about Treebeard is that when he gets angry, when he does decide to act, he like destroys the valley in a measure of about five minutes. And I think that that actually is a really important part of what being measured and prudent implies. It's not about being weak. It's about knowing that when you do what it is that you're called to do, that it's going to do exactly what it is that you're called to do. It's having confidence in that, that you've seen the, the lead up, you've seen what God's been doing, and now you can step in and do it and have real confidence that real things are going to change because of that, because of the patience, the measuredness that you showed in following out God's plan, that it it gives this kind of deep, uh, understated power that you would not have otherwise had, because you're walking with the timing and the plan that God has for you. And with that, the last thing that I think that God encourages us to do with this is to embrace our weaknesses. That sounds fun, right? Save the best for last. Mandy Smith is a pastor and an author, and she says this, she says, when we see how God is able to show his power in our weakness, not in spite of our weakness, but because of it, we're no longer ashamed or afraid. How would our lives look if we really embraced and boasted in our limitations? What could it mean to be experts in weakness? You know, one of the fun things about following Jesus and reading the New Testament, especially the Gospels, is that they're filled with all kinds of weird things like this, things that seem like completely opposite to what logic dictates. And yet, when you do them, when you walk them out, you start to realize that they actually make sense, that they actually do change your life for the better, that they affect you in good ways. But it just feels really strange and foreign to us. And the kingdom of God is just like that. It has these conundrums that we have to deal with. So how can we be strong, like she's saying, if we're weak? And isn't it the most unhealthy thing in the world to become an expert in an area that is your weakness? What does that even look like? Uh, It seems like something that I shouldn't encourage you to do. Well, embracing your weakness, first off, has nothing to do with inaction and giving up. Nothing at all. It's not about being passive, just allowing things to happen to you. It's not about just continuing on in the same way that you are going and kind of giving up, so to speak. Instead, it's a very, a, it's not a passive. It's a very movement-focused decision to allow God to be your strength completely. It requires action out of you. I was thinking about this this week, and a worship song that I've been listening to, kind of on repeat a little bit, uh, has this really simple line in it uh, that says, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And like I said, very simple, but I was thinking about that. And when I was thinking about it, I remembered a uh, part in a book that I read recently And in this book, the main character is surrounded, quite literally. He stumbles, falls, and everybody's kind of all around him all of a sudden. And very quickly, all of his friends make the decision to run in, and they face out, surrounding him in a circle, fighting off everybody who's coming against him. Because they knew, as is often the case in literature, right, that the main character has to do the thing that has to be done. And so if he didn't do it, then it, even if they lived, what kind of living was that going to be? It wasn't going to be worth it. There was The only way that true victory, true success was going to come was through him making it. And so they made the conscious decision to risk themselves to protect him, to make sure that he made it. And when I was thinking about that, it made me think about this concept of embracing weakness and how that looks for us. And I think that that's how it looks for us, that when we embrace our weakness, when we're willing to reach a point where we can say, okay, God, I don't have to be the one in control. I don't have to be the strong one in this, that we look up and we realize that God's got us completely surrounded that he has us completely protected and covered, that he's actually the one that's guiding us, that's moving us towards what it is that we're called to do, that he's the one instigating and leading in that instance. It's not actually us. That in that moment of embracing our weakness, when we give up control, when we admit that we're not strong enough on our own and that maybe for the first time we don't have to be strong enough on our own, that God can be strong enough for us, when we embrace that reality, we can see the way forward because we know that God is surrounding us, that God's strength is the thing that we're relying on, that that's the power that we need in order to do the things that God has asked us to do. It's not about choosing inactivity. It's about choosing to acknowledge that God is already so active that our job is to step back and let his power be seen, to recognize that reality in our lives. That's what it looks like. And of course, no one shows this better than Jesus, right? The man who, the God who became man, who gave up everything. And he modeled this. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, says this about this concept. He says that in your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In becoming man, Jesus embraced weakness in a way that we will never fully be able to ever embrace weakness. It's a whole nother level but he embraced the reality that he could die, and then he did. He walked that path. He became man. He lived his life, and then he died. And at the moment of death, at the greatest moment of weakness that any of us will ever know, the moment when we have absolutely zero control over anything, when we have zero strength to do anything because we have been completely overpowered, There's nothing in us that's in control in that moment. At that time, when Jesus embraced that reality, when he chose death and he kept moving forward in that, in that lowest place that he could possibly be, God broke through in the single most powerful action that we've ever seen or we will ever see. The single most powerful act of justice and mercy happened because Jesus was willing to fully embrace his weakness. Because he was able to take that on and to give up control. In that moment, God was able to work in a way that is affected and will continue to affect our world forever. There's no end to it because of the act of humility and embracing his weakness that Jesus did. He allowed himself to be nothing so that God could be something. And it was out of that lowliness, that weakness, that prudence, that steadfastness, that steadiness, that submissiveness, it was out of that that God acted. And when we as followers of Jesus live out what he's modeled to us. When we learn what it means to embrace humility with and before God, when we step aside and we let God work in our lives in the way that he longs to work, when we take that action of walking humbly, we become experts in justice and mercy like we would never be able to be on our own. In that moment, Micah 6-8 comes together completely, and we can begin to step into what it is that makes God happy, that God has for us. And this is all one big process, right? Everything we've been talking about the past few weeks, there's no prayer I can pray that would make it instantaneous for you. Sorry. That's not the way that this one works. This is a process that happens over time that God works out in our lives. It's a process of becoming a people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly. And God gives us a great example in Jesus. He gives us a constant guide and companion in the Holy Spirit, but it does take time and intentionality from us. It requires something of us to live out this process. So one last example as we end. I... uh, just because I wanted a hobby, have recently decided to uh, start uh, brewing, or roasting coffee. So I'll grab my props. I brought props, guys. You're welcome. So in case you don't know the process of roasting coffee, of coffee from beginning to end, I'll tell you a little bit. Uh, so coffee plants are actually small trees. And it can take up to four years for the fruit, the berries of coffee trees to ripen and to grow, uh, to kind of maturity, to when you would harvest them. So there are these little red berries, I think they're red usually, and uh, the farmer either goes out there by hand or he will uh, take a machine and go and harvest all the coffee berries off of a tree. And then he takes them and you have to break them open and you take out the seed. Coffee beans are actually the seed of the coffee plant, of the coffee berries. And so then you take them and you break them open and you separate it from the pulp and all the liquid and stuff like that that's in these berries, and you set them out, usually in uh, other countries, over huge sheets, and you just let it dry in the sun. If you want to go to the next, that's a picture I took of that happening in Indonesia when I was there. And so. They set out all these coffee beans to dry on these huge sheets and let them dry for a long time. And once they're dried, then they look like this. They're green. Green coffee beans. And let me tell you, you do not want to grind this up and drink it. It will taste awful. Really, really bad. And it will not smell good either, which is not fun. The things that we like about coffee will not happen out of green beans. So then it has to go through the process of roasting. Coffee roasters who do this on a big scale have huge pieces of equipment and, you know, big ways, uh, big production lines and whatever. I do not have that. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this. It's a Whirly Pop. Anybody used one of these for popcorn? Yeah. Take one of these, you put it over the stove, you give it some cranks, and your popcorn starts to come. So I'm going to do that with coffee beans. I will put these in, and I'm going to do it in the garage because the amount of smoke and smell, Sarah would not appreciate it if I did it in the apartment. So you do it in the garage over a camp stove, like really rustic, embracing the the true process of this. And you take it, and you heat it up, and then you just start to crank it and you crank it, and you crank it as the heat grows, till it grows to about 400 degrees. And then when it reaches that point, you'll hear this crack, and you know it's almost done. It's the, the final process has begun. You keep turning, you keep turning, it's hot, checking the temperature, and then you'll hear the second crack. And at that point, you take it off the heat and you begin to cool it. And that, that last process with the cracks and all of that stuff is called pyrolysis. And that's the process that releases the oil that makes it brown, that brings the aroma that we like, that brings the the flavor and taste that we like in it. Without that process, like I said, it would taste disgusting. It would be fairly gross. Even the most diehard coffee drinkers among us would not want to drink that coffee. Pyrolysis is necessary. This whole process is necessary to get coffee, which most of us rely on pretty desperately, uh, to get coffee to the way that we want it in order to be able to drink it. So if the worship team wants to come on up, living out Micah 6.8 requires living out this sort of process. It requires going through a process of of being harvested of ripening after four years of being dried out on big sheets of being heated over 400 degree temperatures of being constantly constantly turned until we reach a point where we're ready where we're at the spot that god wants us to be at it requires a process for us and it doesn't matter where you're at in the process The important part is that you're in that process, that you're at one of those stages that you're allowing God to do the things that he wants to do in your life to kind of form you and make you into the very good-smelling coffee bean that you want to be. Not the green, stinky one. So this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to jump into that process. Don't resist a part of it. It can be hard, it can be frustrating at times, that's, that's real, that's part of it. I'm sure the coffee beans don't like being heated up like that, but God's inviting us to step into that process, to, to engage with him in it, to say yes to Jesus, to become people who are doers of justice, who are lovers of mercy, and who are walkers in humility with him. And if there are ways that you've been resisting embracing your weakness, just want to encourage you, stop. I I like control just as much as the next, next guy, believe me. But it's a kind of pointless, frustrating cycle to go through if you're constantly trying to take control back from God. Give it up to him. Embrace the reality that he's already doing the things that you're trying to duplicate. Just accept it. Allow yourself to take it. Be happy about it. It's a good thing. You might smile with a grimace, but at least you're smiling. At least you're stepping into it. So embrace your weakness and recognize that God is surrounding you, that he's your strength, and that we're invited to embrace that strength. So if you want to stand, we're going to go into a time of worship, and the band will lead us in a couple songs, and I'll be back to lead us in prayer. But before we... uh, Seeing, I just wanted to pray and kind of transition us a little bit. So will you pray with me? Jesus, I just say thank you. I thank you for, for your process. I just thank you, first off, for your, your great example of a process, for your living this out in such a strong way that we can see Thank you that you embraced weakness in ways that we can't understand, that we can't embrace, uh, and that because of that, that you brought so much change to us, that you made us new, that you chose us in that, that you loved us, that you made us your children, your friends. Just thank you for that, Lord. And I just pray that this morning, if there's any of us here that are struggling to embrace that reality of who we are in you who are struggling to give up control, to embrace the gift that you've already given to us. I just ask for your grace this morning. Come and speak to us clearly and show us how it is that you're wanting to work in our lives and the, and the good gifts, the good, the great and the deep love that you have for us that has made all of this possible in our lives. We just thank you, Jesus. Come and be here this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.